0: Thank you, Matt, and the team a lot and for serving up and setting up precisely what we wanna talk about this morning together as a church. How long, oh Lord? (laughs) I don't know if this has been your experience. It's certainly been my experience over the last several weeks and maybe even months just looking around my world, and it's not my world, but looking around the world in which I live And sort of asking the question, what in the world is going on? Everything seems to just be going kaput. I I don't know how many times I have walked around in my house thinking, wait, is this really happening? Is this not a dream? Do I actually have to be told no? I can't go have enchiladas at Chewy's? What is going on? How long, oh Lord, before Chewy's reopens? Now, that's a first world problem, and I get that, but... There seems to be a lot of things going on that perhaps drive us to want to have answers. I mean, there's, of course, this COVID-19 global pandemic that has gotten everyone's attention, and rightly so. There's this whole economic thing that's happening because, well... The economy's in the tank because fewer people are driving and flying, and so oil prices are in the tank, and there's a few oil-rich, multinational uh, organizations who uh, are using geopolitical opportunistic times to get at one another, and all of those things. There's all of these things, not to mention, by the way, the most contentious, entertaining, totally insane presidential election in the history of our nation. All of those things makes us all at some point say, what in the world is going on, and how long before God actually intervenes and before he actually does something? How long before you're going to clean up this mess? God, aren't you doing something? And as we've said before, God is never not doing something. God is always active, working for his glory and for our good, if we but have eyes to see it. Now, he's always doing something, it's probably not what we expect, but it's always best. And it's really important for us to remember for our faith. If all we ever do is look at the circumstances around us, like Peter stepping out of a boat and seeing, hey, these are really big waves, I believe I'll drown now. If all we ever do is look at our circumstances, we will inevitably begin to sink because there is a gravity to our depravity, and all of that will drag us down. But If we look to the Lord, it's amazing how the things of this earth really and truly do grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So that leads us to our big idea for the morning, what we're going to want to walk out of wherever we are this morning hearing this sermon. Our big idea for the morning goes like this. The outlook produces fear. The uplook produces faith. If we just look at what's going on in our world and try to make sense of it, we will inevitably be stoked up in fear, uncertainty, doubt, and ultimately anxiety. But if we keep our eyes turned to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that faith actually increases. And we're not the first generation, we're certainly not the first community to have these kinds of experiences that we're going through right now. In fact, we're going to get an incredibly relevant narrative from Scripture that gives us some much-needed truth. As you probably know by now, we're starting a three-week sermon series, Lord willing, in the little minor prophet book of Habakkuk. Now, we're approaching this sermon series in Habakkuk a little bit differently than we have done sermon series through a book of Scripture in the past. I mentioned this to you already. Hopefully, on email, you've already seen this. Every Thursday and Friday, you're going to get a little snippet mini-teaching that sets up some of the biblical or literary context of the passage. On Friday, you'll get some historical context, some background teaching that sort of sets the stage for what we want to talk about on Sunday. And then on Monday and Tuesday, you're going to get another quick teaching that is probably going to be from either Matt or Mike or from Ashley Barrero, someone you'll hear from in just a moment, that sort of applies it and makes it personal and lands it right squarely in our lives. So, If you haven't been looking at those emails, I really want to invite you and encourage you to do that. If you're not getting those emails, please text the number that we have on screen periodically and let us know. We want to make sure that you are receiving all of the content we can distribute because that's how we're staying together. That's how we stay gathered even though we are scattered. We've already looked at the biblical and historical contexts of Habakkuk. You should have already seen those and make sure that you refer back to those. For now, I want you to hear our passage read. Ashley Barrero, who coordinates a lot of our children's ministries and all of the events that happen in this space, is going to read for us Habakkuk one. Ashley.
1: The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They then sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint.
0: Thank you, Ashley. That is God's word to God's people. Now we have to remember that the prophet Habakkuk is not writing to us here and now. He's not addressing our specific circumstance. This is written by a guy 2,600 years ago as a person to some people in a place for a very specific purpose. And yet, from that narrative, we're able to extract a principle and transport it across time and space and drop it into our context and learn some things that are true about God, about ourselves, and about how those two things interact in time and space. So this is the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is writing to a group of people who are going through a very strange time indeed. Again, if you haven't watched the teaching videos from Thursday and Friday, I encourage you to do that. Your translation in Habakkuk 1.1 might be a little bit different. The Hebrew there is actually the burden. Now, the ESV translates it as oracle, which is a a fair and accurate translation. But in the context, really, this is the burden that Habakkuk saw. This is the thing that he is saddled with. He wishes he was not that guy. He wishes he was not the one to actually have to understand and see and experience all of this. So I want to very briefly just walk back through this and see what Habakkuk is Reporting on, we're gonna see a question by Habakkuk, an answer by God, and then another question by Habakkuk. And let's see how perhaps this flicks some familiarity in our own soul for how we're going through our day and age today. Habakkuk 1.1, the oracle or the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. He actually saw and heard what he says he actually saw and heard. He asks the question, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I like this guy, Habakkuk. He's at least honest. He's not trying to pretend some religiosity of saying, oh, be careful what you ask for. Be nice to God and he'll be nice to you. And oh, you don't want to push God's buttons. No, Habakkuk is actually honestly asking a question. Where are you, what's happening? Violence, there are people being objectified, there are people being victimized, there are people being taken advantage of innocently. Either, God, you're disinterested, or you just don't care, or you're actually unable or unwilling to do anything. Where are you, God? We need help, why will you not listen? Why will you not save? If you can, then why won't you? It's a very real question that Habakkuk asks. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that we can ask real questions of our God and he is not threatened, nor does he blush, nor is he put off with, oh, you insolent, tiny creature, how dare you? It's a legitimate, sincere question that Habakkuk asks. Verse three, "'Why do you make me see iniquity? "'And why do you idly look at wrong? "'Destruction and violence are before me. "'Strife and contention arise.'" You have to remember that this is written probably right around the time of 605 B.C. The Battle of Carchemish between Egypt and Babylon has taken place. Egypt has fallen. Babylon is rising. And yet, right in the shadow of the Battle of Carchemish, the people of Judah are treating God like a good luck charm oh, we're God's people, and yes, we'll do some things mechanically and mindlessly in worship, but we really don't love him. In fact, we kind of resent him and want him to get out of the way until we need him. And so, as is the case with all people groups, violence, envy, strife, objectification, victimization is breaking out. And Habakkuk, He's a Levitical priest, we think. We'll see that at the end of chapter three. Is heartbroken over this. Why is this being allowed to happen in my land, among my people? What's going on? Where is my God? Verse four, so the law is paralyzed. Torah does nothing. Torah is powerless to make this unrighteous people a righteous people. We don't need Torah. We need you, God. Where are you? The law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. There is a sense in which the the heartbeat of the population, either believing population or the unbelieving population, that says things are not as they could and should be. Where is God? If there is a God, why won't he do something? Now, astonishingly, Habakkuk gets an answer. God answers Habakkuk and gives Habakkuk probably more than he was bargaining for. Verse five, the Lord answers, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, Habakkuk, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. (laughs) I love right there, the answer to the question of what's going on and how long, the answer to that question, I am. God says, oh, you don't understand, I am who I am, and I'm doing a thing, but I don't tell you all my plans because you couldn't handle the truth. I'm gonna do something, and even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it, but now I'm going to tell you. Verse six, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. This is terrifying. They were a butchering, horrible, violent, aggressive people, these Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar was... A marauding king that would destroy everything in his path. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God is completely aware of who they are, what they're like, and what they do. And God says something amazing. I am raising them up. I am superintending their evil for my good. That's always important for us to remember. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. What is God saying? He's saying that seemingly, from all appearances, they are sovereign. Justice and dignity go from themselves. That's what God is like. And apparently, the empire of Babylon does the same thing. They answer to no one. But God wants us to make sure and understand that they actually are under his sovereign rule and direction. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the Then evening wolves, their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. This is amazingly specific language. God is telling Habakkuk, you know how the Babylonians do warfare. They build siege ramps. They take cities. There's no walls that can hold them. They'll just build ramps and go over the top. They'd already wiped out the Assyrian Empire, the bullies on the block, in 612 B.C. Now Babylon is going to be essentially the king of the known world at that time. God says, I am raising them up. You thought you had a problem in Judah? Understand, it's about to get worse. Verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Their strength is their God. And I'm going to use this for my purpose. It's amazing the kind of God that we have, the kind of God that we serve. Most of us, if we're being honest, think too small of our God. We think of God as something just a little bit bigger and better than us, minus the sin that will take care of things in a pinch. But that's not how God is. He is the sovereign of the universe, of the entire cosmos. We're reminded that about 1,500 years before this, God tells Abram, I want you to stay in the land, be fruitful and multiply. I want you to grow for me, the messianic people. The nation of Israel will come from you. Stay in this land and be productive. And yet God knows that it's not going to happen because of sin They're going to sojourn down to Egypt because they will not trust their God. And God says, I'm going to superintend all of that for my purpose. Because you see, he'll tell Abram in Genesis 15, the wickedness of the Amorites has not yet ripened. 400 years you will be in Egypt while their wickedness ripens. And then I'm going to bring you up out of Egypt on eagle's wings. That's interesting language compared to what we see in Habakkuk. And I'm going to use you, your descendants, as the instruments of my judgment upon this wickedness. You would think that Israel would remember this, but no, 15 centuries later, Israel, Judah, are the people that are in the land, occupying it with bounty and blessing and profitability. And they forget their God. And they begin to practice violence and wickedness one against another. And God says, in the same way that I brought you out of Egypt to judge the Amorites, I'm now bringing the Babylonians out of the East to judge you. It's a sobering thought. This God and his sovereignty will address sin, wickedness, and evil. And particularly what stirs the heart of God to wrath is violence, human violence. Now look around in our world read just the other day of all of this violence that's taking place in the midst of this pandemic, people rising up against one another, police officers being killed, all sorts of racial strife and hatred and enmity. God is stirred to wrath because he is grieved over human violence and he will raise up whatever he must raise up to deal with it. I wanna be really careful here. I'm not providing some explanation as to what's going on in our world with this little tiny virus. I'm not equating that the Babylonian Empire. Please hear me. What I am saying is that God is sovereign, and he will get done what he will get done. Well, the heart of our passage really comes to us beginning in verse 12, where Habakkuk, having heard God's response, asks another question, and the key really is in verse 12. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Habakkuk asks very honestly, very transparently, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Now that first clause, are you not from everlasting? <sighs> That's actually offensive. Habakkuk is ridiculing God. Are you not eternal? Are you not everlasting? Are you not are you not God? You certainly don't seem to be who I think you are. We've got a problem here. I needed you to solve it, but you're telling me you're about to make things worse? Are you not... It's a rebuke, and astonishingly, sometimes people in Scripture, the founders of our faith, will say very derogatory things about their God, and God allows it. The prophet Jeremiah calls God a deceptive brook. Every time I go there to refresh myself, it dries up and goes away. That's what you're like, God, and God is not freaked out by that. He can handle our truth and our transparency. Habakkuk asks, wait a second, Are you not from Everlasting? I thought you were bigger than this. Where are you, God? That's an astonishing question. But then he continues on in verse 12. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. And there's the key. See, this is not just Habakkuk calling God some churchy or spiritual sounding names. This is Habakkuk invoking covenantal language all of the southern kingdom, all of the northern kingdom might have forgotten the faithfulness of God, but Habakkuk has not. He calls God my holy one. This is the gospel. He is my holy one because of the covenant that he himself made on my behalf. He is my holy one because I am his first, because of who he is, because of what he's like, because of what he has done. And so in the midst of all the other uncertainty, Habakkuk confesses that which is utterly True. You are my God. You are my Holy One. We shall not die. Oh, we might experience the temporary separation of physical body from spiritual soul, maybe, but you are my Holy One because I am yours and vice versa. Oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O oh rock, have established them for reproof. I see it. I may not understand it, I may not have all of the information, but I get it. You are the Holy One, and you have my best in mind. That is my confession of faith. Whether or not I can fully reconcile all the data and details, you are my God. And as we're going to see in just a moment, I trust you. Verse 13, you who are of pure eyes then to see evil and cannot look at wrong Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And he's talking about the Babylonians. Notice how his concern has shifted. He was concerned about his own countrymen, the people of Judah, perpetrating violence one against another. But now he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now I'm concerned for my people. You're going to use the wicked Babylonians to do harm to my people? And Habakkuk enters right into their circumstance. It's good leadership there. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings, that's Babylon, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net and gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. God, Habakkuk says, this is the kind of people you're bringing against my people, those who don't know you, who reject you, who will celebrate their victory as if it's them. Are you sure? God, therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, is this gonna get out of hand? Is is this gonna gonna be a, a holocaust of the known world under Babylon that you started? God, is this what you want? But Habakkuk says in chapter two, verse one, where there should really be the break of this narrative. But, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. But you are my God and you are my Holy One. And based upon that, I will stop, I will shut my pie hole, and I will listen. I can't explain all that's going on. It's not my place as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a community member, to answer every question. My place is to stand and watch and wait and lament, like Habakkuk, and say, how long? How long will people that we love be hurt? How long will people that we love grieve? How long will people that we love have questions that they cannot answer? But you are my God you are my holy one. And so this passage, again, as our big idea teaches us, the outlook produces fear, the uplook produces faith. I just want to give three very quick principles to try to apply this passage to our lives, where we are, who we are today. Number one goes like this, the answer to the question why is who? And I know that's vexing, because we want actual concrete answers. We want problems that we can solve, but we are ridiculously underqualified to solve any of life's meaningful problems. Instead, when we ask God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? Like Habakkuk, we have to preach little sermons to our souls and say, you are Yahweh. You are the covenant-keeping God. You are full of loving kindness and mercy and compassion, and you really are good. Even if I can't discern it, you are good, and you have your glory and my best in mind always. I will wait for God. May not explain away all the circumstances, but we don't care. The outlook produces fear. The uplook produces faith. Ah, I have a God and he is good and he is the most real thing in the cosmos. And then I find my anxieties flittering away. Still don't have answers, but then I begin to become the kind of person who doesn't actually need answers to thrive. I just need my God. Second point God's ways are not like our ways. God deals with things in ways that we could never understand. We have a tendency to be reactionary, to identify symptoms and try to address those symptoms so that we can finally get to a problem and then eradicate that problem. God's not doing that. He is sovereign. He is operating with sovereignty over the entirety of the cosmos, not just our solar system and world or our community or individual lives. He's working all of those things together for the good of of those who are called according to his purpose. And he does not do things the way that we do things because he's God. He's not like us. Praise God. We can trust him. His ways are better. Which leads me to our third point and I want this one to really land because selfishly, transparently, it really stuck on me this week. The Lord is God, not a hero. I believe it was that great theologian Bonnie Tyler who rightly said, "We need a hero." And a lot of us feel that way when we're experiencing fear, uncertainty, doubt, strife, enmity, violence, oppression, opposition, and angst. We just need a hero. Our culture in the Western hemisphere and Western civilization loves hero mythology because it is this societal, cultural binding up of all of our hopes. We need someone who's just a little bit better, bigger, stronger, and more noble than we are to come in and solve our problems. Isn't that what all of our superheroes are? They're bigger, better, stronger, slightly more noble than us, probably less sin, if any, and they can just fix things, and then they leave when the problem is solved. God's not Superman. He's not interested in the pursuit of life, liberty, and the American way. He does not wear a cape. The Lord, Yahweh, is not a hero. He is God. And he does not operate the way superheroes do. Well, right at the right moment, Spider-Man flings in or Batman pulls off that thing from his belt. That's not how God operates because he is God. He's not a hero. We wanna keep our eyes fixed rightly on God because the outlook of our circumstances produces fear. The uplook produces faith. And as we've seen here, the Lord, our God, is holy, holy, holy. That does not merely mean that he is pure and moral. It means he moves himself forward to set right all that is wrong in the world. That's what holiness is. It is his character moving forward. God does and will deal with wickedness and evil. He raised up the children of Israel to judge Egypt. He raised up the children of Israel to judge the Amorites. He raised up Assyria and Babylon to judge the northern and southern kingdoms. That's how much God detests evil. So much so that he even sends himself, his second self you might say, the very son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, to become All of the sin, wickedness, oppression, violence, objectivity, victimization of the world, God himself becomes it and then pours out all of his judgment upon it. Why God? Why? I am. He is the answer. And so as we turn our eyes away from the waves like Peter, as we turn our eyes away from the surrounding Egyptians or Babylonians, and we turn our eyes instead like Habakkuk from our watchtower, let's see what God will do. We know that he is good and we can trust him.